Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 49 and 50, the regional and international dynamics of the Israel-Palestine conflict. we have previously discussed this conflict from a historical context uh, giving a complete outlook on israel's internal affairs as well and then later on we had a guest uh, apurva ayer uh, who gave us insights on the external affairs as well of israel and the historical context of this conflict and we have her again on the podcast because of course uh, her episode was very well received by the audience too and uh, i believe the previous two episodes that we had with her uh, were an exclusive overview of the conflict now we are going to go a little more deeper uh, including the current situation and the developments that are happening uh, so apurva welcome to the podcast again thank you so much omkar thank you very much for your precious time always glad to have you back Uh, so yes uh, without any delay we'll uh, take a direct uh, deep dive into this topic we have seen several developments that are happening uh, in this conflict at the moment uh, i believe uh, there has been a hold from both the sides uh, to let the uh, civilians have their way even hostages have been released so can you tell us briefly about these recent developments with respect to the temporary truce and what are your perspectives in this regard november 24 a significant development occurred in the conflict with a temporary truce between israel and hamas this truce was negotiated and led by qatar egypt and the united states of america which marked a major turning point in the conflict it was a two phase deal like in the first phase of this deal hamas released about 50 israeli women and children who were held in gaza while israel released about 150 palestinian prisoners additionally israel uh, i mean uh, israel permitted over about uh, 200 to 300 trucks per day to enter gaza from egypt and more fuel was to be allowed into gaza despite these positive steps there have been mutual accusations between israel and hamas of violating the conditions and there were concerns that the truce might collapse even before completing its four day duration but now the four day duration was first extended to two more days and then to another day as the mediators were able to push both the sides to announce it before its expiration for the second time as well from an israeli perspective the current situation is not seen as a truce but as a temporary pause in the fight as it is evident as a truce has expired and they have resumed fighting but israel views a formal truce or a ceasefire as a potential hindrance to its ground offensive 
which is primarily focused on reducing Hamas's military capabilities to a point where it is no longer possessing a threat to Israeli society. And this stance has been re-emphasized by Israeli policymakers time and again, who have been clearly stating their reluctance to engage in any truce agreement or humanitarian pause or ceasefire that would impede their primary military objectives of the complete annihilation of Hamas. However, there is an understanding that since Hamas is rooted in ideology, it cannot be completely eradicated through military means or through guns and bullets alone. And bullets and ground offensive absolutely cannot eliminate an ideology-based group, a notion that has been evident and that has been proven time and again in previous conflicts as well. Now, despite launching ground offenses with the aim of destroying Hamas, Israel has not been so far been able to completely successful in this endeavor. That is the reason why during this period of temporary pause and hostilities, the Israeli government decided that such a truce can be leveraged to use this time to regroup, reverse the military operations, and also help in further gathering of intelligence so that they can resume their fight again. And they had, even once the truce was announced, they had already declared that North Gaza is still a military zone, which served as an indication to the Palestinians who were thinking of re returning back to the region due to the current status of a temporary truce that was taking place between Israel and Hamas. And the announcement was actually made for the restrictions of Palestinians who were using it to return it to the certain areas. And this actually underscores the complexity and the uh, of the ongoing challenges in this conflict. But it's not just that. The topic of this truce has been a very critical issue for a considerable time, especially since the initiation of the ground offensive and the resulting increase in the civilian casualties in Gaza, which has led to a humanitarian crisis as well. For Israel, from a political dimension as well is very crucial with regards to the ground offensive because it needs to demonstrate a victory, particularly in the light of the events that have unfolded on October 7th. This has resulted in internal tensions as well within Israel because the focus of Israel's strategy, particularly the ground offensive, has been a major point of concern with regards to the possibility of release and the safety of the hostages not being considered as a primary priority. This approach was highlighted by the United States as well, which is Israel's primary ally, which suggested that delaying ground operations in the beginning after the attack took place to facilitate further discussions regarding the release of the hostages. In fact, there was a report by the New York Times that the Biden administration is urging the Netanyahu government urging the Netanyahu administration to postpone its ground operations in the beginning after the October 7th attack. And this delay was requested by the United States to prepare for any potential attack that could take place by the Iranian proxies in the region that would be targeting US interest and also due to the support that is being uh, shifted towards more Palestinian support back in the United States. And this was very critical because as we can see in the overall regional dynamics that there have been an increased uh, proc in Iranian proxies attack on the United States and there have been an increased escalation of conflict uh, between Israel and Lebanon on the borders. And that has been uh, escalating to such an extent that 
there is concerns now whether uh, this could lead to a situation where it would uh, go out of control because of some or the other miscalculation. Moreover, okay. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's apparent lack of attendance at the funeral of the deceased has also been noted and taken into consideration by the hostages, by the people who have lost their dear ones in that October 7th attack. And this has resulted in an increasing protest across the nation, especially in Tel Aviv. And these protests are significant as they are led by the families of the hostages, led by the families of the deceased, reflecting a growing discontent and concerns among the Israeli population over the handling of the conflict and the prioritization of certain military and political strategies over the past few weeks. On the other hand, alongside these internal pressures that have been going on, Israel also in the initial stages after the attack had cut electricity supply, had cut any uh, to and fro movement of essential goods and services in, that has led to a shortage of water, food, medical supplies and other essential aid. And the crisis has intensified for civilians in this region. So additionally, the ground offensive and the challenges of providing aid to the civilians added to the complexities because the ground offensive prevented the any possibility as well for any aid to go through. So this truce that was announced was a major breather for from a humanitarian perspective because it created an opportunity for releasing the hostages, for putting the hostages aspect at the center stage but also gave some leeway, some time for the distribution of humanitarian aid in the region, which has seen over 10,000 civilian casualties in over one month. On the other hand, you have Hamas, which has used this truce, which has used this temporary pause to regroup, strategize, and potentially replenish its arms and ammunition. So this underscores that it is not just from Israeli perspective. It's also coming from, you have the civilian side as well, you have the Hamas side as well. Because of which everyone were able to understand their interest and therefore they agreed to this temporary pause in the first place. Although the conflict has begun now, they have started the fight again, they have resumed that fight again. But overall, this negotiation was a major turning point and a highlight but beyond this temporary pause one major aspect that has come into the highlight spotlight is Qatar has emerged as a key player in the recent negotiation because it has achieved a significant diplomatic victory with the negotiation that it took place that it was not only able to bring the uh, warring factions on the table it was able to negotiate it not once not twice but thrice because it was extended four days two days and then one more day and that was considered as impossible by both israel and the united states in the beginning of the conflict in fact once the ground offensive also began and the attack that kind that kind of attack that took place on october 7th that was a general notion that any kind of temporary truce would be considered as near impossible. So in that environment, Qatar was able to lead the negotiations with Egypt and the United States to have this uh, temporary pause. So 
Qatar leading the negotiation was underscores the kind of it took negotiations that took place not just with the warring factions but the coordination and cooperation that it was having between the United States, Egypt, you have Israel and you have various Palestinian factions because Qatari negotiators were actively involved and working tirelessly to prevent the truce from falling apart because in the initial stages as well uh, there was a concern, I have mentioned it before, like there was a concern that the truce would not even work for four days and that is when Qatari officials made their first public official visit to Israel when they landed in the Ben-Gurion International Airport in Israel. And it was noteworthy because Qatar and Israel do not maintain official diplomatic relations. They do have communication channels, but they do not have official diplomatic relations to have that. So making that visit was a significant gesture in the context of regional politics and diplomacy. So while Qatar officials, most of them had returned, some of them stayed back for the mediation efforts and to collaborate with other Israeli officials as well to make sure that they are able to maintain the truce and they are able to continue a peace situation when the truce is taking place. But this is not just one isolated case for Qatar's official involvement in high-stake diplomacy. Because even in September as well, uh, it played a huge role with regards to the facilitation of the prisoner exchange between the United States and Iran. And such diplomatic endeavors can be traced back to 1995 when Qatar's emir positioned the country as a mediator in the Middle East. And this approach is very unique because Qatar is not just engaging with a variety of state actors, but also with non-state actors. For example, Qatar has several US military bases. Despite not having official diplomatic ties with Israel, Qatar has communication ties with Israel since 1995. And at the same time, it is able to have communication channels with various Palestinian factions, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Taliban in Afghanistan, which is a huge feat in diplomatic world. Now, despite criticism from some policymakers, various policymakers across the world because of the kind of relationship that it is having with these groups, some of them that are designated as terrorist organizations in various countries, this ability to navigate various diplomatic situations, to maneuver itself in such a phase that it is able to keep itself as a negotiator and its willingness to communicate with diverse actors has been able to facilitate dialogue and agreement in situations where other state actors would not be able to do so because they are leaning on one side or the other. Moreover, with regards to Hamas and Qatar relation, Qatar has long-standing ties to the Palestinian cause and it has been an adherent supporter to the two-state solution. In fact, it hosts several political figures including Khalid Mashal, who is a veteran political figure from Hamas, and the current head of Hamas, who is Ismail Haniya, has been residing in Doha since 2016. So these deep involvement and support for the Palestinian cause has further solidified Qatar's role as a key mediator and influencer in the Middle East politics. And it has also been beneficial 
for various western countries and the united states because it has been able to maintain that kind of a balance despite criticism is always there but look in this kind of situation where you have hostages you have israel and hamas fighting qatar has been able to position itself some other country it would have been much more challenging to even talk to the other uh, warring factions because they may be leaning on one side or the other so qatar's involvement in these negotiations despite the conflict has begun now the truce has ended but the truce took place for about 7 days and this was much more longer than it was expected because there has been an increasing public pressure on the policy makers across the world to achieve a truce to increase the humanitarian aid and to achieve a ceasefire because the civilian casualty is mounting on gaza and in the future when because this fight with after the truce has taken place that fight is only going to take place for a couple of days not it's not going to take place for a couple of weeks anymore it's not going to take place for a couple of months anymore it, the general analysis is uh their truce after the truce the fighting will take place just for a couple of more days and to push that for a truce for a ceasefire qatar's position as a diplomatic influence would be critical in this process because it has reflected its capacity to mediate effectively in complex international dynamics alongside that the other question is with regards to what will happen after that because gaza has been the, the gaza has been destroyed to a huge extent it is completely having that kind of an effect because of the ground offensive that has taken place so with regards to the uh, who will assist the reconstruction of gaza and the rehabilitation of the displaced palestinians in these efforts as well qatar is likely to play a critical role not just because of its strategic position or its diplomatic uh, solution but also because qatar has been a key player in efforts to rebuild gaza and support of the palestinian people in the past as well moreover their loyalty for the palestinian cause unlike various other arab states would be a critical aspect as we move ahead in the aftermath of the conflict with regards to the ceasefire in addressing the humanitarian needs of the palestinian people so with this regard uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the response of egypt and jordan in this conflict now that you have divided the question in two parts egypt and jordan let's take it one by one first is being egypt there has been a growing criticism from the international community that despite having historical sympathy for the palestinian cause despite having sympathy for the palestinians egypt is not ready to take in the palestinian refugees irrespective of the fact that the ground offensive has already started which has led to a humanitarian crisis you have so many over 10000 civilians that have had casualties in gaza despite that egypt is not opening its rafa border for the palestinian refugees and in response to that in response to the growing international pressure uh, there is one uh, financial times that had reported that a senior egyptian official they had kept the identity anonymous that stated you want us to take 1 million people 
well i am going to send them to europe you care about human rights so much well you can take them and i haven't changed i mean that is exactly what they had said i am not even exaggerating as to the kind of statement that was being made by the egyptian official but from an egyptian perspective when we look at this situation as to why they are not allowing palestinian refugees there are various reasons for that various reasons for egypt for not taking in palestinian refugees first it is due to the complexity of the egyptian internal political dynamics especially regarding muslim brotherhood and the kind of history that egypt has which has shaped its relations and perspectives to towards hamas which is the palestinian branch of the muslim brotherhood the second factor is that egypt is worried that if there is a mass exodus of palestinians from gaza there is a possibility that while palestinian refugees are coming from the rafa border there would be various people various members of the palestinian factions who would enter egypt along with the civilians and start residing in the egyptian soil which would eventually raise security concerns for egypt and this is because there has already been a destabilization situation in sinai because egyptian military has been for a long fighting against various extremist groups and it has time and again accused hamas for backing them and by saying that they are uh, they would allow palestinian refugees the egyptian president sisi is emphasizing that in case that kind of a situation happens it would result in palestinian uh, militant factions also entering uh, egypt via sinai and they would use sinai as a base to attack israel which would eventually result in a situation where israel would use its uh, right to defense would use its military power to attack those palestinian factions to counter the palestinian factions who are using sinai as a base that would eventually end up striking egyptian territories and egypt doesn't want that to happen but apart from that there is also a major palestinian and egyptian history and this is because this situation with regards to the palestinian and egyptian relations it underwent a significant change after the 1973 arab israeli war and the subsequent peace process that was uh, facilitated by the united states between egypt and israel and the turning point in this shift was the camp david accords in 1978 which resulted in a new era in egypt israel relations that eventually had a profound impact on the palestinians who have been living in egypt this is because there was also an assassination of the former minister of culture at that time by a pro palestinian faction which was significant that it influenced the Palest- egyptian policies towards palestinians because in response to this incident under the leadership of that former egyptian president uh, sadat egyptian laws were amended to increasingly treat palestinians as foreigners and this has a major repercussion on the statehood and the livelihood of the palestinians because they were excluded from accessing state services and their residencies 
was arrested. They lied to residency. So from that situation where Egypt had allowed the Palestinians to come in, where Egypt had allowed them to access state service, have the right to residency, all of that was taken back. And this marked a major departure from Egypt's previous stance towards Palestinian, underscoring the complexities of the regional dynamics that is taking place in that region at that point of time, taking place in that country. So that is the reason why the changes underscores the shifting dynamics and how the challenges have been faced by the Palestinian communities in the region, particularly in uh, countries like Egypt, where they had previously enjoyed that kind of treatment, you know, accessing all possible state services and residency amongst others. But despite the history, despite the security situation, despite the kind of controversial statement that was being made by the Egyptian um, official to a media house, one thing that is a concern, I think not just for Egypt, it's I speak that for the entirety of Middle East is that they are worried about the reputation of history. Why I say that is because in 1948 war that eventually led to the creation of Israel, about 700,000 Palestinians were expelled. Palestinians fled from what is now the state of Israel. And this movement is actually known as Nakba, which is an Arabic term for catastrophe. Tens and thousands of Palestinians at that time came to Egypt. And they came in large number after Nasser President Nasser came into power and, <clears throat> power and further allowed Palestinians to enter the country. In 1948, it took place. 1954, the policy change was brought in by President Nasser. More Palestinians started coming in. Additional refugees also started arriving after the 1967 Arab-Israeli war, during which Israel had seized West Bank and Gaza. And eventually, after the war ended, Israel prevented most of the uh, Palestinians to return home. In fact, even after the, I mean, you have so many incidents that are 1948, 1967, all of that Israeli government, Israel refused to take in Palestinians because they were concerned that more Palestinians starts coming. The refugees who had fled, if they start coming in the now state of Israel, it would entirely change the demography of the country because Israel is a Jewish state and they wanted to maintain that Jewish uh, identity of the state. If Palestinian refugees they had allowed, the demography would have completely changed. And that is why Egypt is absolutely worried because after the 1967 war as well, uh, when the Palestinians have fled, most of them are still residing in uh, various parts, including Jordan. You have Palestinian refugee camps in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, West Bank, and even in Jerusalem. So this is the fear that in case Egypt now allows, look at it from today's perspective. If Egypt allows, you not only have that security concern, but even if we ignore that and we say that, okay, Palestinian cause is at the forefront, we want to help the Palestinian refugees they come in, the war ends in case that kind of a situation arises where Israel is not allowing the Palestinians to come back to Israel, uh, Gaza. That would eventually mean that not only has Israel expelled them, but also 
that Egypt was complicit in this kind of a situation where there, there is a complete displacement of the Palestinians. And that would result in a huge outcry, especially in the Islamic world, because he would be considered as a traitor, not just in the eyes of the Egyptians, but, uh, but the entire uh, you know, Islamic world. So, but despite all of these reasons, despite all of these reasons, there were reports uh, around October 15th that indicated that Egypt was considering a deal to host up about 100,000 Palestinians that are being displaced from the Gaza Strip because uh, people were told to move from uh, one part of the Gaza to other because of the ground offensive. And it had, there were increasing humanitarian crisis was also taking place. So Egypt, there was this report that was coming in exchange for debt relief from the United States. And this consideration emerges because of the Egyptian concerns of an economic crisis that is taking place in the country and a prospect for a U.S. debt relief would be completely appealing to them as it would help them as, uh, address their economic uh, woes. But it was October 15th. By October 18th, within three days, the stance had completely shifted. The reports that were coming out were completely changed because news reports were then coming out that Egypt is denying that kind of a deal. There, uh, there was uh, no such deal in the first place. Not just like denying. They're saying they did not have any deal as such. How far it's true, uh, like uh, that's something that needs to be talked to officials who are involved in it. But this was this position that Palestinians would not be displaced from Gaza was further reiterated by President Sisi in the Cairo Peace Summit that was taking place uh, in Egypt, very emphasized that not use that it was essential that the, uh, the world does not use human sufferings as a means to force displacement and the statement was to underscore that egypt is still uh, addressing and committed to the palestinian cause and the suffering of the palestinian people but it is not going to resort to solutions that might displace them permanently in fact, there was a phone call as well between President Biden and Sisi where they had revealed that they're discussing that Palestinians in would should not be displaced from Gaza and they should remain there irrespective of any situation arise. And there should be uh, diplomatic situation solutions that should be found so that Palestinians are not displaced from Gaza. In fact, when Anthony Blinken, who is the Secretary of State for the United States, had visited uh, Egypt, CC went a step ahead and he th there's this video clip where he was saying to uh, Anthony Blinken, what do you mean when you came to Israel and you said, I come here as a Jewish man? I have lived in a neighbor neighborhood surrounded by Jews and unlike the European countries who carried out pogroms against Jews, we, let, we have always lived peacefully with Jews and have always resided with them uh, peacefully. That was the kind of statement that that uh, President Sisi had said, despite these kind of reports that were coming uh, coming out from uh, various media media houses. So this development reflects the complexities and the rapidly changing dynamics in the region, 
particularly concerning the humanitarian crisis and the Palestinian people and the Palestinian cause in Gaza. Because from a time when Egypt was not ready to take the Palestinian refugees because of security reasons, because of history being repeated, there was a situation where there was reports coming that Egypt may take in Palestinian refugees for financial aid, but then they were back to square one, where they said that we were not going to take any Palestinian refugees. And at this point of time, one also needs to take into consideration that Egypt and Jordan have been known for maintaining a peace and maintaining cordial relations and have with Israel and the Arab world and the United States. But even now, the Egyptian president is reeling under public pressure, the public anger that has been outpouring in the streets of Egypt. Because there have been massive pro-Palestinian protests that have taken place across the country. Despite the country having massive restrictions on protest and anti-protest laws that have been in place since 2013. So, this kind of pressure, the public pressure is the reason why there have been inconsistencies in the statements that have been passed both by the Egypt and by the United States official because they are under public pressure and Egyptian president is especially in this regards is under absolute public pressure to showcase that they are with the Palestinian cause. And this is the case of Egypt. Now let's come to Jordan. Again, in the case of Jordan, Jordan's history as compared to Egypt, it is much more complicated with regards to the Palestine and the Palestinian cause. Jordan is a country that has been officially designated as a major non-NATO ally of the United States in the Middle East region back in the 1996 only. So apart from alongside Egypt, Jordan is also concerned that there is a possibility of this situation leading to another Nakba, which is a major concern for them as well. But apart from that, Jordan has a very dark history, or should I say, a very critical factor, which is it's con the country's history with the Palestinians that has been highlighted due to the Black September conflict. Now, they're also known as the Jordanian Civil War, which occurred in uh, 1970 and 71. It involved King Hussein of Jordan and the Palestinian Liberation Organization uh, in conflict. Because in 1948 and after 1967 war, a lot of Palestinians had relocated to Jordan. Alongside that, Palestinian factions also relocated to Jordan. And it began... It, began using Jordan as a base for launching attacks on Israel and the territories that were captured by Israel during the war, 1967 war. So as the PLO gained strength, they started advocating for the overthrow of the Jordan's Hashemite monarchy. This even escalated to such a situation that where there was an aircraft hijacking by the Popular Front of the Liberation of Palestine, which led to a situation that Jordanian army eventually surrounded the cities where there was significant PLO presence and the military response ultimately resulted in the Jordanian civil war. This Jordanian civil war, in this King Hussein of Jordan actually sought assistance from various countries and groups including Iranian guerrilla fighters and Pakistani fighters. 
One of them is Zia ul Haq, who later went on to become the Prime Minister of Pakistan. So a lot of statements when you have coming from Pakistan, you know, we stand by the Palestinian cause, we stand by the Palestinian people. A lot of that, that this is considered like, oh, have you ever looked at your own history? Because Zia ul Haq, even though the kind of role that he played in that is open to argument what to what extent he played a role but he was contributing to that conflict from the jordanian side to the against the palestinian and he later went on to become the prime minister anyways um this situation this conflict uh, led to significant palestinian casualties uh, in the jordanian civil war in fact after the war had ended moshe dayan who is a very uh, prominent israeli leader stated that King Hussein has killed more Palestinians in 11 days than Israel had in 20 years. That was a statement that was made. So you have this history. So that is the reason why there were concerns for Jordan to take in Palestinian refugees. And at the beginning itself, King Abdullah was clear when he said that neither his country nor Egypt will accept Palestinian refugees. And in this regard, it is a red line. And alongside that, even though Jordan has been staying away from the Palestinian factions and Hamas. The situation in Gaza due to the ground offensive, uh, the casualties have increased to such a great extent that it has created a huge public outrage amongst the Jordanian population to the extent that even policymakers, including Queen Raina, who is from a Palestinian descendant, they have had a major backlash and outrage for the Jordanian policies uh, that have been uh, taking place because the statements were also coming from King Abdullah. What it is a red line, so the outrage and backlash has been pour pouring outside in uh, Jordanian cities, and there have been instances where Jordanian police have been forced to use tear gas to disperse protesters who are trying to approach the Israel-Jordan border in solidarity with the Palestinians. In fact, when there was the news about the Al-Ahel hospital bombing, more than 6,000 people took part in a demonstration uh, in Amman and that was arranged by the Palest or, um, opposition parties and the tribal groups. That is the reason why after that uh, bombing took place, the there was an increasing civilian casualties. Jordan eventually had to reel in under public pressure and cancelled a meeting that was to take place between King Abdullah, Muhammad Abbas, who is from the Palestinian Authority head, President Sisi, and uh, President uh, the United States, uh, that who were going to visit uh, Israel during the October uh, after that conflict that took place. So, not only that. Jordan went ahead and even recalled its ambassador from Israel on November 1 during the human catastrophe that is taking place in the ground offensive, which it has called as war crimes, as it has led to civilian uh, casualties to a huge number. And alongside that, on a political front, Jordan also withdrew from the United Arab Emirates deal in which the UAE will supply solar energy via Jordan to Israel and in return, Israel was supposed to give them salinated water. And also, Prime Minister of Jordan came up and said they, they would not be tricked to allow any Israeli efforts to physically relocate Palestinians from the West Bank or they would not allow any uh, relocation and the displacement of Palestinians from Gaza as well, which is 
in strong contrast to John's strong, uh, like staunch strategy with regards to maintaining peace treaty with Israel, because it was one of the first nations who had started a signed a peace treaty with Israel in 1994, and became the first Arab nation since uh, uh, Egypt. So. This also underscores that the kind of pressure that Jordanian leadership is also under uh, due to the public pressure that has been rising. It's not just Egypt. Jordan is also there. And another factor in my, uh, like, uh, also a lot, of, a lot of people would consider that it is completely disconnected to the kind of response that Jordan is having. But uh, the Hashemite dynasty that is currently uh, ruling Jordan has had long-standing historical and religious significance in the Islamic world because they had controlled, uh, you know, Mecca, which is uh, one of the holiest mosques, uh, holiest cities in Islamic world. And until it, 1924, when it was conquered by the House of Saud. Subsequently, both Mecca and Medina uh, fell into, uh, like, it was incorporated into what is now Saudi Arabia. And meanwhile, Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is third holiest mosque in the Islamic world, fell into the custodianship of the Hashemite dynasty. So this transition has marked a huge long-standing struggle for influence between the two powerful bloodlines, which is the House of Saud and the Hashemite dynasty. Over the time, because of the oil uh, money revenue that they have, Saudi Arabia also having a lot of diplomatic power because of the oil industry it has, Saudi Arabia has been able to increase its dominance and this has led to a power struggle to such an extent that Hashemite dynasty, which is holding the guardianship of custodianship of Al-Aqsa Mosque, have been largely overshadowed by the rising influence of Saudi Arabia. And why I am saying this is because there was a there, there was a recent conversation about Israel and Saudi Arabia normalization of ties. And which is also known as the, the deal of the century. So this added to a new dimension to their rivalry because there was news reports that were coming through that it was uh, that Saudi Arabia might take control of the Al-Aqsa Mosque as well. Because from a Saudi Arabia perspective, gaining control of Al-Aqsa Mosque would be like they would be eventually solidifying their position in the religious authority in the Islamic world because they would end up being the custodian of the three most holiest places in the, uh, for the Muslims. For, so for Israel, in case even if it had to be negotiations from the United States side to give the custodianship of the Al-Aqsa to Saudi Arabia, that, that would eventually lead to facilitation of the normalization of ties with Saudi Arabia would be a huge regional shift because <clears throat> and why I'm stating this is because the normalization of ties between Saudi and Israel has been one of the major factors that has been considered for the attack that led on October 7th. So this evolving relationship between Saudi Arabia, between Israel and the United States has placed Jordan in a very complex situation that Jordan is not only has to deal with the situation that is taking place in Gaza, but also has to take into play consideration as to what developments are taking place with regards to Israel and Saudi Arabia relations. So it has put a massive 
pressure for the Jordanian dynasty and the political policy makers in Jordan as they have to navigate these complex challenging dynamics. So because despite having cordial relationship with Israel and the US, King Abdullah has to had been forced to adopt a very assertive stance in various actions that have taken place and the rhetorics that are coming from Amman as well. And that is the reason why Anthony Blinken also understood that, okay, you are having a major non-NATO ally in the region who is reeling under internal pressure, reeling under the external pressure that has been caused by the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. You also have this situation that is taking place with regards to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Obviously, there have been no confirmation or denial so far from any of the uh, involving parties in this. So all of this, Anthony Blinken had eventually went to Amman because he understood these factors because Jordan was now lambasting the military offensive that is taking place in Gaza and it is being carried out by Israel. Moreover, in the recent IISS Manama Dialogue 2023, the frustration that was there amongst the Arab nations was extremely vocal against Israel for carrying out the kind of ground offensive taking place in Palestine. In fact, there was I was watching that entire event. So one of the major statements by the Jordanian foreign minister was not only he went on criticizing Israel to a great extent, but he also mentioned that Arab forces will not go to Gaza and we will not be seen as the enemy. He when he said we just not just Jordan but Arab forces in particular. So. There is a reason why the Jordanian foreign minister has emphasized on the Arab forces in Gaza uh, in that speech. Because as per Times of Israel report, when CIA director William Byrne had traveled to Egypt and had met President Sisi, he had mentioned it to, to uh, Sisi that they should take in temporary security management of the Gaza Strip after the war until the Palestinian authorities are prepared to take over. And that proposal was absolutely refused by Sisi and said that they would not play a role in removing Hamas. So that is one needs one needs to understand these aspects that it's not just Jordan, it's not just Egypt. Both of them having that kind of a relations, that kind of a political dynamic are under pressure despite not wanting to lash out at Israel because they have the cordial relations in the political level. They are forced to do that because of the ground offensive that is taking place in Israel, which has led to massive public outrage. They have to take into consideration the public uh, sentiments as well at this point of time. Okay. So uh, this is an interesting perspective on both the nations. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, about Saudi Arabia as well. So coming to that point, what is the situation looking like uh, when it comes to the normalization of ties with Israel of Saudi Arabia? And is this uh, normalization of ties still in the place uh, given the current situation? Well, um, before I answer that statement, you know, whether normalization of ties is still in the table, we need to understand the historical aspect as well as to why we reached that position as to the custodian of the holy Mecca and Medina, Saudi Arabia, has to normalize ties with the Israel. I'm not going to go far, but just from 2015 onwards, because that is when Mohammed bin Salman, who is the crown, was promoted as a deputy crown prince. 
and later on he went on to become the crown prince of saudi arabia but back in april 2015 saudi arabia faced a huge economic crisis because it was grappling with a record annual budget deficit of nearly 98 billion dollars and by december 2015 the kingdom had announced its plan to cut government spendings and reform its finances these financial restraint eventually led mohammed bin salman then deputy crown uh, prince of saudi arabia that it is an urgent need for saudi arabia to diversify its economy and reduce its dependence on oil revenue and this realization eventually resulted in the launch of saudi vision 2013 in 20, saudi vision 2013 april 2016 which is a strategic framework aimed at economic diversification and reducing reliance on oil revenues the announcement was made in april 2016 june 2017 as a part of promoting the vision 2030 mohammed bin salman visited united states during that visit he traveled to various places in the uh, country and met very high profile people including mark zuckerberg and other influential individuals notably he wasn't wearing the traditional attire that he wears for meetings but was wearing a western attire symbolizing his intent to market 2030 vision 2030 as a new and an open saudi arabia and this image was further aligned with the vision's goal of transforming and developing saudi in various sectors including entertainment culture sports retail and there was an option the prince could have mom, mom mbs mohammed bin salman who is also known as mbs he could have traveled to other places as well it can would have been london it could have been paris russia or china but he chose the united states because this decision reflects his strategic priorities that was further emphasized in his statement that he compared the new vision 2030 project and he envisaged that the project replicates saudi replicates miami in terms of the cultural and entertainment and sports avenues that it would provide and these are the choice of words it wasn't any other it wasn't las vegas it wasn't london it wasn't paris he compared it to miami he wants it to look like miami it wants uh so mbs wants it to make sure that their development is in such a way that people are looking at this and they are like oh it's it looks like miami so that was the vision that was taking place 2017 visit uh, 2017 uh, visit was that in 2018 2018 the development of vision 2030 may faced a huge setback with the jamal khashoggi case where a journalist was uh, killed in the saudi consulate in istanbul turkey although saudi arabia had denied its involvement in the khashoggi's death but there were reports including that were officially leaked by the cia that directly implicated the now crown prince mohammed bin salman for directly in being involved in the assassination in fact during that time in 2018 there was a future investment initiative that summit that was to take place and major corporations you have google jp morgan blackrock various international media houses like cnn bloomberg cnbc all of them were invited but they were hesitant to engage in this kind of a project they were hesitant to go to saudi arabia 
because of the potential reputational damage they could have had because of the Khashoggi case. And this situation escalated to such an extent that the, uh, it became very politically and ethically sensitive for the companies and that led to their withdrawal and part from the participation and support for the uh, uh, Vision 2030 project. And did, this again impacted the Vision 2030. Then you have another setback because uh, <clears throat> apart from the uh, Khashoggi case and the controversy regarding that, it was a major challenge because it also led to a situation where uh, despite having promising investment projects and everything, people were reluctant to be a part of it. By then, apart from the Jamal Khashoggi case, you had Saudi Arabia was involved in the Yemen civil war, which has been taking place since 2015, which is right in their backyard. That further complicates the country's security situation. In fact, um, the conflict is between the Saudis and the Saudi Arabia-led collision in Yemen. And this conflict escalated to such a situation, such a level that even in 2019, there were major attacks on oil processing facilities um, in uh, Akkais and Khurais, that was all, all processing facilities <clears throat> which has been operated by Aramco. During this period, President Donald Trump was in office and he chose not to escalate the situation or provide protection or thereby maintaining a non-intervention stance. Then you have 2020, which again adds to the challenges of Saudi Arabia with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic which led to a global economic downturn because a lot of companies worldwide were halting their investments and focusing on reducing the labor cost. This economic collapse along with affected Saudi Arabia to a great extent because it not only stalled the investments that were coming in the country, but it was further exacerbated because of the significant drop in oil prices because the entire world was in lockdown. So oil prices uh, reduced and it impacted Saudi Arabia's economy, which was still reliant on oil revenues. And moreover, you had the Hajj and Umrah pil pilgrimages as well. And that is also a source of uh, income for the country. In that as well, Saudi Arabia lost some billions of dollars. That is, and it is during this time, President Joe Biden was elected, who stated in his campaign that he would hold Saudi Arabia accountable for the Jamal Khashoggi case. And this added another layer of complexity to Saudi Arabia's international relations and economic prospects. Because when you have a president state making a statement like that, it would not, it won't make it difficult for the <clears throat> companies that are working in that country. It would be difficult for the companies, United States company to even make an investment, even if they want to. So a list of challenges that have been taking place since the announcement of Vision 2030 in 2016 with regards to the diversification of economy. And as per <clears throat> reports, Saudi Arabia was still relied on uh, oil revenues, which accounted for 74% of its budget. The combination of these factors, Remen Civil War, the Khashoggi case, the COVID-19, the US foreign policy issues, all of them <clears throat> was hindering the advancement of the Vision 2030 project. Fast forward to 2023, Saudi 
Arabia eventually had to implement a new law mandating companies to establish their regional headquarters in the kingdom so that they are eligible for government contracts starting in 2024. This decision was significant because while operating in Saudi Arabia, a lot of companies were setting up their headquarters in UAE. So this was another effort to push forward for the Vision 2030 project. And it also highlights that despite having that Vision 2030 project, it has not had that kind of a growth that is expected. Because unlike many countries, Saudi Arabia is not a democracy. It is a monarchy. It does not have that kind of a parliamentary process or that is there in typical democracies. You have to go through various bills have to be passed in parliament, etc. It does not have that. But despite having a monarchy which allows it to have swift decision making, 2000 Vision 2030 project was not going as it was envisioned. And it made it clear with this kind of law that was being implemented. So from an economic perspective, Vision 2030 was being impacted. From a military perspective, from a security perspective, the kingdom was under attack on a regular basis from the Houthi, Iran-backed Houthis in Yemen. And then you had the Iran-backed uh, Iraqi groups in Iraq. And Saudi Arabia borders both these countries. And military as well, they were posing a lot of challenges because Iraqi groups had launched attack on the Saudi royal palace in 2021. So acknowledging these dual pressures of economic and military threats, Saudi Arabia finally decided that there is a strategic change that needs to be there. And that is the reason why, in the first place, they started beginning to have an engagement with Iran. Because it would give them a breathing space that so that they are able to move ahead with the economic development that they want to have. That is the reason why you had the Iran and Saudi Arabia rapprochement that took place in March 2023. That was brokered by China. It was... Uh, and this rapprochement was aimed to provide both economic and military relief to Saudi Arabia and gave them space to accelerate Vision 2030 project because they would be able to then tell Iran to reel in their proxies who are attacking Saudi Arabia. Now, apart from that, they had Saudi Arabia also had to compete with the United Arab Emirates who had significant infrastructure development and also, after the normalization of ties under the Abraham Accords in 2020, UAE had significant advancement and it was able to, to have major economic and political development as well because normalization of ties with Israel also meant that UAE has come closer to the United States. It has come closer to the US Congress. It has come closer to the White House. And that the reason... That is the reason why I'm explaining all of this because the normalization of ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia, it is not coming out of a complete vacuum because Saudi Arabia understands that it needs to normalize ties with Israel because so far it has been oil revenues to sustain the economy. But another motivation that Saudi Arabia is eventually having is that first, Saudi Arabia is going to get a NATO-style security framework uh, from the United States, which is aimed at countering threats from Iran and the Iranian black proxies in Yemen and Iraq and everything. Second, 
the kingdom is expected to have assistance in developing a civil nuclear energy uh, program in <clears throat> in the country so this the, these two aspects are the major importance to saudi arabia that it is trying to have a significant influence in the region significant influence in inter international politics not just based on the oil revenues not just based on the oil it has but also because of the economic development it has the diversification it has the businesses and investment foreign investment it has the, all of this has led to the uh, you know situation where saudi arabia is looking forward to normalization of ties with israel and to although formalization of ties has been highlighted this year there have been significant process progress that have taken place in saudi arabia with regards to israel with regards to the world aspect to showcase its image the, the conservative islamic country image that saudi arabia has had for decade it is trying to change that and there have been major milestones as well because Saudi Arabia opened its airspace to Israeli flights and a lot of high profile meetings have been taking place when because in September 2023 like right about a month before the attack on October 7th Israeli tourism minister went to Riyadh for a UNESCO meeting and it, he became the first Israeli cabinet minister to do so moreover Saudi Arabia had reduced its rhetorics against Israel as compared to what it used to take place in the past for instance you had had lot of anti jewish rhetorics that were common in the sermons in uh, the friday prayers in mosques which was which is a way to address the muslims not just in saudi arabia but across the world and that is further underscored that even the in the holy mosque in which is there in mecca there you had also there's who is a imam of the mosque who said that he spoke that prophet muhammad had spoken of friendly relations with jews and advocated tolerance uh, for the jews despite having controversial statements that were complete that were anti-semitic in the past moreover then you have changes with regards to uh, removal of anti-semitic content that were there in educational materials education was completely the religious and quranic and islamic studies that have been taking place for uh, for a very long time has been reduced i mean the, these two topics have been reduced from 34 to 15 weekly classes in middle schools and 38 to 30 weekly classes in primary schools and moreover in 2018 i was just reading this report from new york times it stated how the kingdom is using imams and the podiums of mosques to praise the ruler as well because the statements that have been coming from imams is not going to just influence the muslims in the country but it's going to uh, <clears throat> influence the muslims across the world that they should not believe the intended media they should not doubt the rulers they should not dwell in issues that they are not aware of and they should trust their rulers so even in the past they have use the uh, imams and the mosque at a pedestal but at the same time they have been using it so that public support is there for whatever decision the mbs is taking mohammed bin salman is taking in saudi arabia and 
this is a huge impact because imams play a huge role in influencing the uh, people in the islamic world but this has gradually changed since the october 7th attack uh, on the israeli society because saudi arabia was again under pressure to do so because earlier there were restrictions uh, that were there on imams to not say anything against the jews not say anything that were anti semitic but although the restrictions have been reduced it has not been removed there have been a lot of statements that have been coming through uh, you know with regards to supporting for the palestinian brothers and sisters granting victory i mean a lot of imams have been making that uh, sermons in their speeches but at the same time while they are using this because it is being broadcasted to appease the general public saudi arabia is also that they are saudi arabia standing with the palestinian cause but at the same time there have been a lot of arrest for arresting people who have been praying for the palestinians in and in fact saudi arabia imams have been banned from uh, paying praying for palestinians and mentioning them in their prayers in fact there was this one report that i was a video that i was looking from clash reporters it said uh it is incumbent upon muslims not to be a part of the uh sedition in gaza they should obey the orders of the rulers listen to the words of the scholars and not interfere in things that are not their duty now that statement was made in arabic but it was mentioned on that uh, twitter which is x now in that uh, statement that they had posted that is the reason why <clears throat> and why i'm saying all of this obviously a lot of people would think that i have distracted from the question that has been asked it is essential to understand the regional and the internal dynamics that it is being taking place in saudi arabia to understand what is going to be the future what is going to be the present scenario because despite having that those kind of movement despite having that kind of uh, changes in terms of saudi arabia towards israel towards having that world image the october 7th attack has forced saudi arabia to reevaluate its foreign policies economic strategies to fit to the current needs and geopolitical realities of saudi arabia and its planned international image because had this attack not been taken place saudi arabia had actually organized the riyadh season and they were focusing on showcasing the uh, world class infrastructure that the country has to increase in uh, international investments that was supposed to take place you had boxing matches between tyson fury and engano uh, you had shakira coming in as the opening ceremony there was food festival there were boulevard city everything was there but the focus completely changed moreover on the uh, gcc asean summit that took place saudi arabia crown prince said that uh, there should be an establishment of the palestinian state with the 1967 borders and uh, there were news report also coming that saudi arabia prince had blocked the numbers of israeli prime minister and is all his aides and envoys then you have the saudi arabia foreign minister uh, calling for palestinian state in united nations general assembly meeting in september you had similar statements that were being made by the ambassador to palestine however the considering the past where you have these kind of developments with regards to israel then you have the situations and the statements that are coming through from october 7th the general consensus from a western perspective was that that saudi arabia 
is standing with the Palestinian cause. It is an ardent supporter of the Palestinian cause. But in my opinion, I would completely disagree with it because these statements that are coming from Saudi Arabia right now, the changes that have been made with regards to the restrictions on the imams that was there, that has been there just to act as a smokescreen because they want to please the Arab public. They want to please the Muslim in general across the world. They want to please the Saudi Arabia general public because he wants to make sure, the Saudi Arabia crown prince wants to make sure that there are some concessions that are being made in Saudi Arabia, Israeli normalization of ties in order to gain support at home, gain support across the Muslim world. But in this case, overall, he has not changed his position as uh, with regards to Israel. He has not changed his position with regards to the Palestinian state or Palestinian cause. But rather, he's making these statements and making these political decisions out of fear of pressure. And that is why I'm saying that it is completely a smoke screen. And with regards to the normalization of ties, you had asked, is the normalization of ties is still on the table? And I'd say, yes, it's still on the table. And it has been mentioned by the Minister of Investment of Saudi Arabia in a Bloomberg Forum event that took place in Saudi uh, Singapore. All of this, there were, this situation, this attack would not have come at a worse time than this for Saudi Arabia. Because from Vision 2030 that was announced in 2016, there were massive barriers that were there. And finally, when there was normalization of ties, finally, when there were reduced complications, this attack has taken place. Because the normalization of ties is not just establishing relations with Israel. Saudi Arabia is getting a lot of things from the United States, but also it is capturing the attention of the White House and garnering support in this United States Congress as well. That is the reason why it has come at a very inconvenient time. And moreover, this shift in Saudi Arabia's position has raised concerns and commitment to the Palestinian cause. I say that if Saudi Arabia were truly advocating for the Palestinians or the Muslim brothers and sisters who are dying there for the Palestinian people, the situation that is unfolding in Israel, they could have at least used the normalization of ties as a leverage against Israel, a leverage against uh, United States, that there should be a truce, there should be a humanitarian pause, that there should be a temporary truce, that there should call for a Palestinian state. Only then we will have a normalization of ties. But nothing of that has happened. There is an absence of such statement. There's an absence of such actions in the political forums. Because Saudi Arabia is aware that the ongoing conflict, the ongoing war will eventually resolve. Not in days, even if it's not in weeks, but at least in a couple of days, weeks or months. So they know that. And understanding that, they know that the key players, including Palestine, Palestinian states, Gaza, West Bank, will still be there. And that is the reason why Saudi Arabia does not want to miss out on the opportunity to normalize ties with Israel. Because it is influenced by both an economic and military decision that Saudi Arabia anticipates from normalizing it with Israel, having cordial relations with Israel, and it is benefiting them.
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.